As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, um, we come to your word and uh, I confess on behalf of all of us that we are just so immensely spoiled in our generation, in our lives, to have the Bible so readily available to us in every way, shape, or form. We have it in a book, we have it on computers, we have it on phones, we have it on little things we keep in our pockets, we have it all over the place. So please, don't let us think just because it's available that we've availed ourselves of it. Help us to really know what we have, what you've given to us. Enable us to see it, to believe it, to guard it, to proclaim it, to live it. And so, Father, now as we come to it, I pray we do so with the utmost reverence for you and for your word. And so, cause it to work deep within us and us to receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to 1 Timothy and chapter 1. I want to read verses 18 through 20. I read them last Sunday. We'll probably have another week here as well. But 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 18, please. Hear the word of God. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, last Sunday, I paraphrased this for you, something like this. Paul writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, so we get that faith, we get that, uh, that um, relationship between these two men. He writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he says, Timothy, you're in a war. It's a spiritual war, but you're in a war. You need to fight the good fight. It's a good fight, meaning it's worthwhile, and meaning it's of such great value. That if it's won, everything is won. If it's lost, all is lost. So fight the good fight. The way you fight the good fight, Timothy, is you hold faith as you continue to believe that which is true, that which has been handed down by the apostles. You hold faith and a good conscience, meaning you approve of that which is right, that which is good, that which is pleasing to God, that which is His will. You approve it. Because, Timothy, if you don't, if you live a life that doesn't approve that which is good from God's perspective and do it, then, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, your faith will be shipwrecked and you'll be cast out of the church. Now, that should take our breath away. But that's the word to Timothy. Now, Paul writes that to Timothy, not because he's angry with him, but because he loves him. Paul writes that to Timothy because he knows the calling on Timothy's life. Timothy's been called to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And and Paul knows what that means because Paul knows what the church is. Paul has communicated to Timothy already that the church is the household of God that is the very dwelling place of God. 
where God is Father and we belong to Him and He protects and provides and leads and disciplines and we submit and love Him and depend upon Him as Father. That the church is the household of God. It's, it's the very called out ones by the living God. And the mission of the church, the key aspect of the church, if you will, is that the church is a pillar and support of the truth, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That is, that God has given to us by way of the apostles uh, this truth concerning his son, this truth concerning our relationship with him, this truth concerning who he is and who we are and how we're to relate to him. That truth, that truth which is that Christ came into the world to save sinners, as Paul says. And this is to lead then to love, which then springs from or issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. He says that's, that's this truth that you've been given. And so, He says to Timothy, you need to guard that. You need to protect that. You need to live that. You need to proclaim that. If you lose that, you've lost everything. Because that's what I've given to you, God says, as my people. You're a pillar and a support of truth. Don't lose that. So Paul writes to Timothy and says, there's going to be a fight, as there always is a fight against the truth. And so what you need to do, Timothy, is that you need to confront error, that which is wrong, that which is blasphemous in the church, and remove it. And if you don't, then you're going to end up in the same situation as those who are blasphemers. Now Paul uses a very dramatic expression. He says that I'm going to, I've given Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan. Now, that again takes our breath away to hear that kind of expression. If you take the scripture seriously at all, that would be something that you would sit up and say, whoa, right? He's going to give them over to Satan. And he does that for, really it appears as if a redemptive kind of purpose that is, so that they would learn not to blaspheme. Alexander and Hymenaeus have been blaspheming. Uh, and that means they've been slandering God. They've been speaking about God, that which isn't true. And so, the apostle says, Timothy, you need to remove people like that from the church. In fact, I know these two, and I've already done that, and I've already given them over to Satan. The hope is that they'll learn something. And they'll learn that what they've been speaking about God is wrong. And so they'll learn not to do that anymore. They'll learn not to blaspheme. Whether they learn that or not, we have no idea. But Paul says, that's why I'm doing this. But you need to cast them out as I've done in the context of the church. Now when I hear that expression, there are at least two questions that come to my mind. The first one is, what does that mean? That Paul has given someone, some ones, two men, over to Satan. What does that mean? And then the second question that comes to my mind is, how does Timothy have any hope at all that he won't end up like them. Because you see, Hymenaeus and Alexander weren't outside the church in the beginning. They were inside the church. Timothy has been instructed, commanded really by Paul to deal with this blasphemy within the context of the church. Those who are teaching that which is false. And these 
I suspect, had been confronted by Paul and had not repented, had not changed their ways, not changed their teaching, not changed their belief, if you will, not agreed with the apostles concerning what the gospel is. And so Paul takes this, taking this drastic step of casting them out of the sphere of the church into the sphere of Satan, casting them out of the church and giving them over, if you will, to Satan because they hadn't learned the lesson in the context of the church. Now he's putting them outside the church to learn it. They'd been speaking on behalf of Satan, if you will, in the church. So he takes them out and puts them outside the church with the hope that they'll get it. They'll see. And if they don't, you get a deep sense that they'll be condemned. So the question is, what's that mean? And then the second question, how does Timothy have any hope at all that he won't end up like them? And that's really just veiled, that question. Because really what I want to ask is, How do I have any hope that I won't end up like them? How do you have any hope that your faith won't be shipwrecked? So, those are the two questions. I'm going to take up the first one today about giving over to Satan. I'm going to take up the next one, God willing, next Sunday. How it is that we can have any assurance at all that we won't end up like Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now let me just give you a little caveat, most especially for those of you who are new. This is really a heavy subject, all right? And you happened into our church today, perhaps you've got invited by a friend, and here you are, and you say, whoa, what is this? This guy's talking about Satan, and people give me, what kind of church is this? Well, we're a church that takes the scripture seriously, and just for you to know that I preach through passages of scripture, I'm preaching through this letter to Timothy, and I happen upon this, and so here we are. If I didn't preach like this, I would never take up this expression, probably, except in very private circumstances and quarters. And uh, but but here we are, and so it's, we're reading it. I trust if I would have read that and not dealt with it in some sense, you would have said, "What does that mean? And how do we know we're not going to end up like that?" And so it's important for us uh, to take this up. So if this freaks you out and you're new, come to lunch. (laughs) All right? Just come to lunch. Although, maybe you'll think worse of us after that experience. But anyway, the food will be good, at least. I don't know about the company. At least mine. But anyway, uh, uh, so so, so just take this. Take this. Just go with us on this. And uh, I think you'll see. Because I had really thought, to be really honest with you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the bravest of souls. And so I really thought I would just skip this. Maybe I'd take it up on a Wednesday night sometime because that's a little different crowd. And um, so I could take that up on a, on a Wednesday night. But then I realized, quite frankly, at the end of this, that there's a point that I really believe that we need to hear that's been lost on our generation. Right? This generation of church. I think has lost something that previous generations had and by losing it it's to our detriment so I'm going to work my way there I think it falls legitimately out of the text but I want to work myself there so hang with me walk through these steps now when Paul says that he's giving these men over to Satan we know 
from Scripture who Satan is. And we know his M.O. We know that his M.O. is always to come against the Word of God. In the Garden of Eden, he said to Eve, did God really say? In other words, to put doubt in her mind about what God had said. In, in, In that sense, he comes after faith. After meaning to destroy faith. He comes after it to destroy it. Uh, that's his, his M.O. We see him at work, for instance, in the life of Job. You remember that Job was said to be a righteous man. And, 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 and in the book of Job, Satan finds his way into the courts of heaven. And when he does, he says to God, The only reason why Job follows you is because you've blessed him. If you make any man as rich and prosperous and happy as, as Job is, then anybody would follow you. But take away any of that and he'll ditch you in a minute, God. And so God, being sovereign over all things, allows Satan to come after Job. And and you realize that God puts limits on the ability of Satan to come after Job. But he comes after him nonetheless. And when he does, what does Job do? He tries to destroy him. He takes everything away from Job that's meaningful to him. Family, wealth, and all of that. Friends, he, he then attacks Job's body. God says, you can't take his life, but he comes after Job's body. Why? Because when Satan arrives, he comes to destroy. And so you get the sense that when Paul says he's going to put these men in the sphere of Satan, he's going to give them over to Satan, you get the sense that destruction is to come to them. That's what Satan will do to them. If I said to you that we, I commend you to God that expression, you would think, I'm coming under the blessing of God. But if I said to you, we're putting you out to Satan, you would think, I'm going to be destroyed. I mean, that's, that's the sense here. We see even Satan come uh, against Jesus in various ways to destroy him. At the least of which is the night that he was betrayed. You remember the scripture says that Satan entered into Judas and Judas went out and betrayed him. Why? Because Satan thought wrongly, but thought that he could destroy Jesus by having him killed. You remember even on that same night that uh, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked To sift you like wheat. Think about that. If you think of wheat being sifted. And Jesus said, Satan wants to come and do that to you. To sift you in such a way as wheat is sifted. Uh, That's what Satan wanted to do. He wanted to destroy Peter. But there was a particular aspect of Peter that he wanted to destroy. And that was his faith. We know that because in Jesus' next line, he says to Peter, But don't be afraid. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In other words, Jesus knew exactly what Satan was after on that night. And he knew that he was after Peter's faith to destroy it. But Jesus said, don't worry, I've prayed that your faith may not fail. And then he said, Jesus did, afterwards you can strengthen your brothers. And so... Satan was also after the, the, the ministry of Peter to destroy his faith and to take away his ability, Peter's, to minister after the crucifixion of Jesus. But Jesus said, don't worry, I've prayed for you. But, but you get the M.O. of Satan at that, at that point. You get the M.O. of Satan uh, in the life of Paul. He said that Satan had given to him a thorn in the flesh. Because, you see, Paul had experienced this wonderful vision. 
And, 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 and he said, but this thorn in the flesh, messenger of Satan, was given to me. And in some sense, it tempered that joy. Also, on another occasion, Paul writes that Satan hindered him from going to the church in Thessalonica. And so you see, again, Satan's MO always is to take away, always is to destroy. Like a thief comes to destroy. And so that's the MO here. Now, God is sovereign over all these things. There aren't two gods in the universe. There's only one. And God is sovereign even over the work of Satan. We see that in the life of Job because we we see, first of all, that God limits Satan uh, in his work in the life of Job. And we also see the outcome. The outcome is that Satan comes to try to destroy the glory of God through the faithful testimony of Job. And we see at the end result that Job is worshiping God more purely and like he never Never did before, even after that experience. We see it even as Satan enters Judas, and Judas betrays Jesus. But the end result of all of that is the glory of God, because then Jesus fulfills all that God his Father had ordained for him. Yes, the cross this atoning sacrifice, but also the resurrection, and also the ascension, and all that comes after that. We see it in the life of Peter, that that was redeemed, if you will, that Satan, if we could put it bluntly, was used by God to actually strengthen Peter so that he could strengthen his brothers. We see it in the life of Paul, the thorn in the flesh that was given to Paul was used by God to cause Paul to learn the greatest lesson almost any of us can learn, which is that power is perfected in weakness. And so when we're weak, we're most dependent upon God. And when we're most dependent upon God, then we're really the strongest, no matter how we feel. But that weakness that leads to strength, you see. And then, of course, when when Paul was hindered from going to the church in Thessalonica by Satan, uh, God used that as well, because Paul was writing a letter to them, which was probably, no doubt, much greater even than his visit to them, because we still read that letter. If Paul had visited visited them, we may not have any account of it, hardly at all. But here we have a letter that has blessed the church generation after generation after generation. So you see that God is sovereign over Satan, and he uses him, really, to his own ends. And so Paul is saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and I'm going to put them in the sphere of Satan. And I'm going to hope that the end result of that will be that they learn not to blaspheme against God. Now, the only other time that this expression is used in the scripture is in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5. Paul uses it there as well. And here, he instructs the church to hand a particular person over to Satan. You may know this passage. Uh, it's, It's a strange one. Strange in the sense that there is a man in the church in Corinth who, as the scripture says, has his father's wife. Meaning that this man has been sexually intimate, probably with his stepmother. And it appears as if everybody's fine with that. And so Paul learns of the situation and goes ballistic. How can this be? He says, even those outside the church know that's wrong. I mean, how can, how can you, the church, put up with that? And so he says, and, and, and no doubt... Uh, This person ultimately had been confronted by Paul. And so Paul says, here's the situation. I want you to give him over to Satan. Notice 1 Corinthians 5, verse 3. 
Read verse 1. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I, pre- I am present in the spirit. As if, and, as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, still there's this redemptive purpose in this. He hopes that this man's spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord. That is, when the Lord returns or when this man dies, whatever comes first, he says, I I pray, my, my desire in all of this is that he will have repented and that he be saved. Now he uses the expression that his, his flesh would be destroyed. Now that's perfect language for Satan. He's the destroyer. Now, some, many think that what Paul has in mind is that this man will go through physical suffering, that his actual flesh, as in Job's situation, his, actually, his actual flesh will be destroyed. He'll, he'll, he'll suffer perhaps ultimately, ultimately leading to his own death. Of course, Paul would hope that he would come to repentance first. Others think that Paul is using the word flesh here as he often does, as sinful nature, that, that somehow this man's sinful nature, his, the, sin that's caused, the, the nature that's causing him to sin like this, will be destroyed in some way or purified by being out of the sphere of the church, into the sphere of Satan, uh, because of the misery, no doubt, that he experiences outside of the church and that he would repent. But Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, he's saying, church, you have a responsibility to remain pure. And so when these things happen, there are times when there's one because of unrepentant sin that has to be cast out. Because the sin is so notorious and the sin is so well known that it's going to permeate everyone. And so you need to exclude that very one. Because you see, he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let us celebrate that feast, uh, not with the old leaven, but with the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, the purity of Christ. And so he says to them finally in verse 12, is it not those in verse 13? He says, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul says to the church that they're to do that. Now, why in the world does the church think it has that kind of authority? Why in the world does the church think that it has that kind of authority to discipline like that? Turn to Matthew chapter 18. Hang with me, we're going somewhere. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
and if refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's an idiom, meaning that he would be a stranger to you, one outside of you. They would understand Gentiles to be those outside. They would understand those who are tax collectors to be actually those who have betrayed you. And so they would be outside. So he's saying, treat them like you would those who are outside of you. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Really, you could translate that more literally. Shall have been bound in heaven so that we are not the sovereign ones, but God is. But we could put it like this. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You can see how we often take that out of context and use it in the context of our praying, but it really that expression of two or more agreeing is in the context of this disciplinary situation. Now Jesus begins by saying, listen, if there's one among you who has sinned against you, or even sinned in sin, then you are to go to them. And in your going to them, you are to talk to them about their sin in such a way, the hope being the repent of their sin. And he says, if you've done that, then you've won them. And they're no longer living in sin. Do you realize, do we realize, that we are in fact, in that sense, our brother's keepers? That we have a responsibility to each other in the context of the household of God, the family of God, the context of our relationship to not be judgmental, not be critical, not be self-righteous, but in humility to examine our lives and know the lives of others and to go to others when they're in sin. Do you know that? In fact, there's a sense in which if we don't, we actually share in some sense in their sin. In Leviticus In chapter 19 and verse 17, Moses writes, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. That expression, reason frankly, you'll find in other versions of the the Bible, other translations, is that you are to rebuke your brother, but to reason frankly, that sense of, you know, very honestly, lest you incur sin because of him. That is to say, that if he's in sin and you know about it, and you don't go to him and talk to him about it, and it's really serious and all that, it's just frivolous things, but you don't go to him, then when he sins, that doesn't take away his responsibility, but you're in a sense in that. You knew about it. And so you had an obligation, you see, to go to him and talk to him. Ezekiel knew about this firsthand. When God called Ezekiel to be his prophet, he said, listen, Ezekiel, you go warn the people. And if you don't warn the people after I've told you to warn the people, their blood will be on your hands. Paul knew about this in his own life in Acts in chapter 20. He talks to the elders of the church in Ephesus and he says to them, he says, your blood is not on my head because I never ceased to tell you the gospel. Jesus tells his disciples, you can find it in Luke chapter 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And so this sense of our responsibility in the lives of one another. And so Jesus makes this very clear in Matthew chapter 18. He says, if your brother sins against you or just even sins in general, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
There have been times when people have come to me and said, do you know what so-and-so is doing or teaching? And I say, no. What did they say about it when you talked to them about it? And they look at me like, oh, I didn't talk to them about it. I want you to talk to them about it. (laughs) And I say, "I, I don't know anything about this. You know about this. I don't know about this. And so you go talk to them, and I am now going to forget this. I always tell young pastors, you need to have one blind eye, one deaf ear, and a selective memory. Because there are some things you shouldn't see, some things you shouldn't hear, and some things you shouldn't remember. And the good news, the older I get, all those are easier. (laughs) And so they should go, you see. And if, if you win your brother or your sister, then you see. You've won them. But if you don't, what do you do? Well, and you go find another. Because truth is established on these kinds of things by two or three witnesses. Now, you don't go to the second person to gang up on the first person. You don't go to the second person to gossip about the first person. You go to the second person, first and foremost, to to weigh your um, your conclusion with them. To say, is this really something we should be concerned about? Is this really sin? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've got this all. Maybe I've got this all wrong. They said this. I'm saying this. Maybe I'm wrong. And, and so you go to this person. Hopefully, this person has some relationship with the first. Perhaps not, but hopefully they have some relationship. They know that person. And 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 so the two of you go. You don't tell anybody else. Once you've told somebody else, then somebody has to come to you and say you shouldn't have told that person. And then you have to repent. And it gets really convoluted if it goes too far. So just deal with it. All right. Just two. And the two of you go. And then if the person refuses and says, no, 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 I'm going to keep living like this or teaching this thing. Then you come to the church. We would take that to mean the elders of the church, not the whole body. Don't stand up in the middle of the church someday and say, ah. Right? Come to the elders of the church. Then the elders of the church with you weigh it. And it may be that the elders of the church say, no, 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 you guys are out to lunch. This really isn't anything that requires anything. Just cool your jets and everybody forgets it. Or it may be that the elders say, oh, no, this is important. We'll go to this person. And as a significant magnitude, and the person then doesn't repent, you see, after time, this isn't just a once-and-done deal, this process here. Then, you see, the church, the church then binds and looses. The church, by the words of Jesus, has the authority to bind in sin and cast out. Or to loose and to free. To loosen the free means to forgive. To bind means to keep in. And so the question is, where does the church get that kind of authority to do that kind of thing? Notice Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, this incident where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says to them, who do people say that I am? And you remember the response perhaps of Peter. Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds by saying, yes, that is true, I am. But realize this, Peter, that you didn't know that of your own accord, but that was given to you, that information, that revelation was given to you by my Father who is in heaven. And then notice how, Peter, how Jesus continues his exchange with Peter, verse 18, and he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so the disciples had already gotten that information as Matthew puts it down in chapter 16. And then chapter 18, Jesus applies it in the context of the church. And so we can see, first of all, that Paul, um, Jesus wasn't simply talking to Peter. He wasn't saying, Peter, you're it. I'm going to build everything on you. Because he then takes that which he spoke of to Peter and he gives it to the whole church. And not only that, he, he doesn't build it all on Peter he, because Peter's just one of the apostles. And later in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that it's on the apostles and prophets that all of this foundation has been built. And so Peter's just representing all of this. But the point is, he says to Peter on this rock, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, as the church, that should make goosebumps run up and down us. What's a key? A key is that which unlocks and let in, or locks and keeps out. Now, we can debate forever what that means, but it doesn't take away just the truth of that as it strikes us, that here we are as the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And that truth is concerning the kingdom of heaven. And God has given to us that. And thus is the church of Jesus Christ, you see, as we have the gospel that allows in and keeps out, that is restrictive of those who do not believe, but is blessing to those who do believe. This gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, this key, you see, we have this as the church. No one else does, just those who belong to Jesus. And that's here. And so he says, now, use this. And you can use this in such a way to realize that in the context of the life of the church, there'll be some that you bind that is in their sin and cast out and some that you loose and, and, and they shall receive forgiveness. In fact, it was amazing that on the, in one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus, you can find this in John chapter 20, Jesus comes to his disciples and he breathes upon them the Holy Spirit and he says to them, whosoever sins you forgive will be forgiven. Whosoever sins you do not forgive will not be forgiven. Now what's he doing, Jesus? He's not saying you're God all of a sudden, but he's saying you're the church. You're my body. You have the message of the gospel of Christ. And so therefore, as you give out this message, that's what you're doing. And in the context of the life of the church, there is power and authority. Now, when Paul says then that I'm going to I've put these men out of the church, that should scare us all. For them at least. Because you see, what he's saying to them is, you're now no longer under the protection of God. You're no longer under the sphere of that which is the church, the very body of Christ. Now you're outside of that completely. It's sort of like you've gone from the oasis to the desert. There's nothing out here that will be of any help to you. Everything is here. You see, he's given to the church the very means of grace. That is to say, that, that we have given to us that which marks us out, these very things, for instance, the very Word of God and the accurate, right teaching, preaching of the Word of God. If you go into a place and the Word of God is not 
respected. And the word of God is not taught. And the word of God is not preached. That is not a church, no matter what the name of the, on the door is, all right? It just simply isn't a church. Because you see, in the context of the church is the very word of God, the means of his grace to us. If you go into a place and people aren't coming to God in prayer through our Lord Jesus Christ, his atoning sacrifice, but if they're simply presuming that they can enter into his presence and, and invoke his name and, and use him and, and to, 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 to pray as if they're praying, and yet they do not believe in Jesus, really, it's not a church. The sacraments aren't being administered in a way that's consistent with that in the scripture as a, as a means of grace. So it's not a church. There isn't real loving discipline happening in the life of that body. It's not really a church. Because you see, in the church, all of this exists and is to exist. And so when Paul says, I'm taking you out of this and putting you in there, that should cause everybody to be deeply concerned and deeply agonized for those people because there's nothing there. There's no blessing from God, only destruction. Right? Unless there's repentance and coming back in. Now, the reason I say all that, it's here, I have to say all that, but the reason I say all that is for us to realize this. That there's real power and authority in the church. And I believe that's been terribly lost on our generation. On the one hand, we're very independent Americans. And so we really don't like anyone telling us to do what to do. And so when we talk about the church, what we're talking about is not a Bible study. What we're talking about is not a website. What we're talking about is not a library filled with Christian books. What we're talking about is, is not just sort of a few even Christians getting together and sharing whatever together. What we're not talking about is what is what we call affectionately parachurch ministry either. Parachurch ministry is that ministry which comes alongside the church and together we work. But there's something unique about church as it's described in the scripture. There's a certain organization. It's, it's more than an organization, but not less. In fact, as we read through 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll find organization. And when Paul speaks of church, when church is talked about in the scripture, both Old Testament and New, it means... And it's an elder-led community of believers in Jesus. And we talk about elder-led, this isn't self-appointed elders. These are elders that fit the qualification that God has called them to in 1 Timothy chapter 3, as we'll see in Titus in chapter 1 and other places. And, and they've been called out by God to lead the church and to oversee its life and its ministry. And it's in the context of those communities where this power of the kings of the kingdom reside and not outside. We've been fortunate in the life of our church to have relationships, most especially with those in parachurch ministries that understand this. And, and thus they come and are part of the larger community, whether it's leaders or students or whatever. And the ministries that we support understand that. And so we see ourselves together under this sense of the discipline of the church and the word of God as overseen by elders in the life of the church. 
But you see, we mustn't get past it. But it's easy in our culture, number one, because we're so independent. It's, it's just easy. You see, in the, in the, in, to, to live apart from the church and, and still function as a Christian. I would say ultimately not healthily, but to function as a Christian. Because we have books and we have websites and we know people and there are Bible studies and there's this and that to meet. But you see, they, they all lack this authority, this power. Certainly the church has abused this authority. Abused in various ways by binding and loosing in certain aspects of life. We have no business binding and loosing in. So we always have to be cautious about those things and statements that churches make that are political statements as opposed to spiritual statements that you need to vote a particular way to be really in the context of the life of the church or even nutritional statements that you have to eat a particular way in order to, other than chocolate, uh, to, uh, which is, you know, the third sacrament. But the... Uh, uh, that was heresy. Uh, but um, I admit it, so don't throw me out. Um, eat a particular way. Or in terms of family, that, that uh, the scripture certainly speaks to these things in family, but there are aspects of family that family should be free about, partially in terms of how they earn their living, perhaps, or how they school their children or raise their children in particular ways. And when the church makes pronouncements on those kinds of things, you see, we lose our, we lose our, our authority, our power, because that's not our prerogative. It's the prerogative of the family. And so we have to be cautious in all those things. And, of course, we can speak of the deep abuses that we've only read about, I trust, in the scripture, in the newspapers and so forth about, about the church. So all of that, I know, hampers us. But still, this context of power and authority that we must understand and, and learn in and grow from and be a part of that. The, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, knows no situation wherein a person could be a follower of Christ and not be committed, attached to a local group of believers under which they submit to elders and serve Christ in that capacity. It's so easy, even in our day, you can leave one church and go to another if you don't particularly care for it. You know, the great danger of this man in the church in Corinth to say, well, I was kicked out of my last church, you know. And I get, keep, keep getting kicked out of certain churches every time I introduce my mom as my wife. Because, you see, we, we have this sense that whatever we think ought to be the right thing. And so we can escape one to go to another. The previous situation, I had to confront uh, two people on staff of the church who were embezzling money, $50,000 over the course a couple of, over a couple of years, and they wouldn't come to repentance, so we had to do some things. But they just simply went down to the next church. And I called the pastor, and I said, hey, here's what's going on, just so you know. And uh, he said, oh, they're fine. I like them. My suspicion is he guarded the treasury a bit, but other than that, uh, but you see, if they're not coming to repentance, great danger in the midst of this. And so we have an obligation, responsibility to one another, but most importantly, we must see in the context of the life of the church, there is this authority, this power. It's been given to us. We're stewards of it. We must maintain it in all humility. 
Paul says in Galatians in chapter 1, anytime we're in such situations that we need to come with great humility. In Galatians in chapter 6, in verse 1, Paul writes this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's the point, isn't it? We know ourselves. So it isn't with self-righteousness or arrogance. But we mustn't give up this. It's interesting to me that in our day, where we have more books, more Christian CDs, more websites, more things you can keep in your pocket that have all things Christian on them, that the church in America today is not at her strongest, historically. She was strongest, historically, when believers in Jesus committed themselves together to submit to God in the context of the life of church. That's when she was strongest. So whatever else we take advantage of, whatever else is helpful in terms of books and CDs and websites and blah, 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 all that stuff. Whatever else is valuable to us, we must never give up this. Now the question is, do we have any assurance at all that even in the context of this, our faith won't become shipwrecked? That's next week. Let me pray. Father in heaven, um, it's astounding to us because all of this is so serious. It, 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 it means everything. And we read these kinds of uh, warnings. It's breathtaking because we, we know this is true. And, and so we pray that you would be with us and help us as a company of people, as believers. I pray for the elders of our church. And any that you would call to be elders in the future, that there would be an unwavering commitment, belief in all that is true. We would hold your word high to guard it, to live it, to proclaim it. Forgive us when we haven't. Help us. And Father, that we would be a people that would graciously, not self-righteously, mercifully, not arrogantly, come to one another when there is sin and help each other. And that we would be gracious to come and gracious to receive and gracious to listen and gracious to explore and gracious that you would be to us to enable us to repent when necessary. And we would take that responsibility in each other's lives. We wouldn't become critical or judgmental or picky. But we become serious. Father, help us. Father, we thank you for blessing us in so many ways. Thank you for those in our church who are loving their neighbor in the context of this community in various ways, for those who have particular influences in the sphere of our schools and our medical community and the business world and various clubs and organizations and recreational activities. And, and, and Father, I pray that, that in every place we find ourselves, that we would love our neighbors well, that they might, through that, 
learn of Christ. Father, we pray for the ministry of Family Promise in a couple of weeks. In our particular church, we pray for it in other churches as well, that the people there would be helped, but most especially, Father, that they would receive a witness of the kindness of Christ and his salvation if they do not already know him. Father, be with Jonathan and Jennifer as they lead us and organize us in this, especially in the next few weeks. Pray that we're forthcoming to help. Father, we thank you for uh, Delbert Earhart's being at home. Father, we love him. Thank you for his life. And uh, we pray for him that you would continue to heal him and bless him. Thanks for the new grandson to Anita and Dean Barnum, Father. May he be a blessing to them and they to him. And Father, we pray for your comfort on Fred Thomas's family, the death of his grandfather, Father, that you'd be with them. Bless them. Father, for others as a church, I pray that you would keep us cutting a straight path um, and that we would be faithful to you. This, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Mind you, to help uh, with the uh, takedown of chairs, please. For those who are new to us, lunch will be served in uh, around 12.30ish, so please uh, make your way to room three for that, uh, for that time. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenants, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, and all through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing. Mm-hmm.